those are wonderful and true words we were just singing. Hail, hail, the word made flesh. Babe, the son of Mary. And this morning, Lord, would you guide our time looking into your word? Would you give us understanding, insight, and joy, great joy, as we read how your word describes our Savior, Jesus Christ, that he is the word made flesh. Help us understand that a little more clearly, more deeply today, and may it change our perspective even on Christmas and on the gospel and on how we live our lives, knowing this wonderful truth that Jesus Christ, the baby who was born in Bethlehem, is Emmanuel, God with us. Guide us, Lord. Use this time to, to uh, teach us, to correct us if needed, and to conform us to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> Well, it is my joy this morning to have the opportunity to open God's Word with you and look at the first five verses of a passage that we're going to study this Christmas season. We'll be studying the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. It's not a passage that we typically read when sharing the Christmas story, not one of the go-to passages necessarily. We usually draw from the Gospels of Luke or Matthew which contain details about the events leading up to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. I remember reading this passage from the Gospel of John as a, as a newer, younger Christian, and uh, usually I'd read, read over it pretty quickly. It's pretty straightforward. I knew that these were important verses, they were true, but in some sense they also struck me as kind of lofty or ethereal, even kind of cosmic. I love the simplicity and the straightforward tone and approach of John's gospel. But honestly, as a younger Christian, I really didn't have great appreciation for the tremendous importance of these few verses. Like I said, I would read past them fairly quickly. I pray that we are all encouraged as we slow down a little bit this Christmas season and examine this deeply significant passage of Scripture. The Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John. I think most of us are aware of that. Later in his life, <clears throat> many think it was written when he was in Ephesus, probably. And many scholars believe that John was almost certainly aware of the other three inspired Gospels by the time he wrote the Gospel of John. It's very likely that he was aware of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and that he wrote this gospel later than the others, probably sometime between A.D. 80 and 90. So the question is, if John knew of these other gospels, why did he feel the need to write another one? If you have read all four gospels, you're aware that John's gospel is very different. It contains no genealogy of Jesus, doesn't contain an account of his birth, there's no account of the temptation in the wilderness. 
There's no account of Jesus' transfiguration, his great commission, or his ascension. And there are no parables. So it's a very different type of gospel than what we call the synoptic gospels or Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John leaves out many features found in the other three gospels, possibly, maybe likely, because he realized there was no need to repeat what was contained in those gospels, but also because we know that the Lord inspired him. All the gospels were inspired by God and written under the inspiration and the leading of the Holy Spirit, the Lord inspired him to explain the person and coming of Jesus Christ from an eternal perspective. Mark's gospel begins with Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. Matthew and Luke started his birth in Bethlehem, but as one commentator wrote, John goes back to the very beginning of history, even beyond it, as if to say, There's only one true perspective in which to see the story, the Christmas story. You must see it in light of eternity. Though the Gospel of John contains a vocabulary of only about 600 words. Isn't that interesting? Very limited vocabulary. That's the number of words these days that an average seven or eight-year-old knows. John, though, rather than Paul, was considered by most early church fathers as the great theologian of the church. Luther called the Gospel of John the unique, tender, genuine, chief gospel. John MacArthur says that the opening section of John expresses the most profound truth in the universe in the clearest terms. Though easily understood by a child... John's spirit-inspired words convey a truth beyond the ability of the greatest minds in human history to fathom. The eternal, infinite God became a man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The glorious, incontrovertible truth that in Jesus, the divine word became flesh is the theme of of John's gospel. While the three synoptic gospels clearly attest to Jesus' humanity, but they also reveal his divinity, John's gospel begins with a crystal clear pronouncement of Christ's absolute, eternal equality with God, the Father. John's prologue, this passage we're going to look at in December, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, his prologue is indispensable to all Christians. One commentator says, if John's assertion of Christ's absolute divinity is denied... However worthy of admiration Christ may be, humanity should look for another Savior. That's a powerful statement. It's a strong statement. John teaches us that Jesus is no less than, in the words of the Nicene Creed, very God of very God. The word Jesus is not only divine, but is responsible for both the world's creation and the world's salvation we're going to see that John was very intentional in declaring Christ's true divinity and that his teaching is foundational to our faith just as it was for the early church. A.W. Pink said this, In this book, we are shown that the one who is heralded by the angels to the Bethlehem shepherds who walked the earth for 33 years who was crucified at Calvary, who rose in triumph from the grave, and who 40 days later departed from these scenes 
was none other than the Lord of glory. The evidence for this is overwhelming. The proofs almost without number, and the effect of contemplating them must be to bow our hearts in worship before, and this is Paul's words in Titus 2, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. John 1 through 18 is, as I said, called the prologue of John's gospel. It summarizes how the word of God came into the, into the sphere of time, history, and tangibility. How the Son of God was sent into the world to become the Jesus of history so that God's grace and truth could be seen by human beings in a human being. How profound is that? so that God's grace and truth could be seen by human beings in a human being. Well, now, if you turn to John 1, uh, verses 1 through 5, let's read those together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is God's word. John states at the end of his gospel that his purpose was to help others believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in his name. That's John 20, 31, the end of John's gospel. He begins right here in these opening verses, which establish, he begins that, that under, giving us that understanding of who Jesus is in these opening verses, which establish that the man known as Jesus Christ is none other than Almighty God himself. So I was studying this passage and preparing it. Um, this is kind of, kind of funny, but it struck me <clears throat> that this passage is kind of the reverse story of The Wizard of Oz. So this a little bit of a strange illustration, but just stay with me for a second here. Kind of the reverse of The Wizard of Oz. In that famous story, and I think most of us know it, when Dorothy and her friends traveled to Oz the second time to meet the wizard, Toto the little dog, tips over a screen in the throne room of the wizard. And the screen tips over, and they see it's revealed that this supposedly magical, powerful wizard is nothing more than an ordinary older man who actually traveled to Oz many years ago from Omaha, Nebraska. I did not remember that detail, but Omaha. So the wizard is exposed as nothing more than a, than a fraud, Kind of a pathetic fraud. Not this magical wizard with all these great powers. So, silly illustration, but in contrast, John it begins in kind of a reverse direction in his gospel with the bold assertion that this man, Jesus Christ, that he's writing about is much more than an ordinary man. He is, in fact, the pre-existent, incarnate Word of God possessing the full deity and authority of God himself. So we'll, as we look at these five verses, we'll look at three key truths found in this passage. Jesus is fully God. 
Number two, Jesus is the creator and sustainer of life. And number three, Jesus is the light who overcomes darkness. So we'll look at point one now. Jesus is fully God. John makes three statements in verse one, and I'm going to break this first point. We don't have, it won't be up on the screen, these three subpoints, but Jesus is fully God. And John makes three short, simple statements in verse one. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This single verse is packed with so much meaning and significance, and it makes the strong, powerful case that Jesus Christ is so much more than an ordinary man. So the first sub-point, again, these won't be up on the screen, is that Jesus Jesus, well, first point is Jesus is fully God, actually. Sub-point's coming. The Greek word John used, uses for word to describe Jesus Christ is logos. Logos. And this word can mean speech, a message, or a word uttered by a living voice embodying a concept or an idea. So this word was actually in fairly wide use in Jesus' day and in, in several different contexts. The Stoics, the Greek Stoics, understood Lagos to represent the rational principle behind the existence of all things. Kind of like the Force in Star Wars, honestly. Kind of a similar idea. Not a god, per se, but kind of an impersonal force behind and beneath all things. Philo, a first century Jew, was influenced by Plato, and he saw Lagos as referring to the ideal primal man, kind of like the original model from which all copies are made, from which imperfect copies are made. There also are examples of this concept of logos, similar, uh, similar usage found in the Old Testament. And considering that John in his gospel frequently quotes and refers to the Old Testament, it's helpful to look at, at the, the way that this concept of the word was used in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is devar, and it means the word, and it was connected with God's activity, his activity in creation. We, we see that in Genesis, in Psalm 33, verse 6. It was connected with God's activity in Revelation. We can see that in Jeremiah 1, 4. In his activity in delivering, deliverance, delivering people, Psalm 107, 20. And I won't look all these up just for the sake of time. Uh, for example, if the Lord is said to speak to, let's say, a prophet. For example, if the Lord is said to speak to the prophet Isaiah, it is worded in Isaiah 33, uh, 38, 4. It's worded as this. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. So in context, we understand this is God speaking a message to the prophet Isaiah. And the way it's worded is using this word, devar. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. In other passages in the Old Testament, the wisdom of God is personified in a way that's similar to the concept of Lagos, like Proverbs 8.22, where wisdom, wisdom says, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. So for John, the most influential thought behind his use of Lagos may have been this Old Testament concept of God's word which referred to his powerful self-expression in creation, in revelation, and salvation. The fact that God's word is often 
personified also makes it a concept that readers of John's gospel would understand. He used logos as a title for God's ultimate self-disclosure in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He gave it this new profound use in describing God's ultimate self-disclosure in the person of Jesus Christ, his son. So now I'm going to give you three subpoints that we won't put up on the screen. Just, just looking at verse 1, breaking that into three, those three short statements. First, in the first statement, in the beginning was the word. We see that Jesus is eternally God. Jesus didn't become God at some point in time. From eternity past to eternity future, Jesus is eternally God. It, this immediately reminds us, and I think it's intentional in John's gospel, it immediately reminds us of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created, which des describes God's activity in the creation of the world. John informs us that Jesus Christ, who is clearly identified as the Word of God in this passage, was present with God at the beginning of the universe. There's a, there's a prominent early church heresy, and I know Pastor John has mentioned this one at other times. It, it, uh, it seems to keep reemerging with different names through the centuries, and maybe most notably in our time with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, who I have discovered are, are pretty active on, on our island, um, pretty active. And this, this heresy was called Arianism because its leader, Arius, taught that Jesus Christ did not exist in eternity past, taught the opposite of what we see here in the Gospel of John. In fact, he made this famous statement, which led to his being um, branded as a heretic and, and kind of excluded from the, the church. He made this statement, there was once when he, meaning Jesus, was not. There was once when he was not. So this was his stance that he took was that Jesus has not always existed. There was a point in time which the, the conclusion would be at some point in time God created Jesus. This false teaching makes Jesus inferior to God. At, at best, just a very special chosen man. John was refuting this unbiblical teaching, maybe not this person Arius because this predated him, but this thinking that has cropped up over the centuries over and over again, he was, John was refuting this, that Christ was created by God at some point in time, reducing him to a great teacher or an example, but certainly not a divine savior. This heresy, interestingly, it's always accompanied by belief in works righteousness. Always accompanied by a legalism and a, and a belief that we can somehow earn our salvation. But, and when you think about it, this makes sense. Because a Jesus who is less than divine can't fully atone for all of our sins. If Jesus isn't perfect and holy and divine, he doesn't have the power or the authority to atone for sins. Many passages of Scripture, of course, like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, make it clear salvation is a gift of God's grace not based on any human works. So clear. So when you encounter this false teaching, just remember, remember that uh, Satan really has no original material. He just kind of repackages the same lies. Different names, slight different twist. 
But really, this, this heresy continues to be uh, embraced by some, frankly, because it appeals to our flesh uh, it, it, and our pride to think that maybe we can somehow earn part of our salvation. But God's Word makes it so clear that is not the case. You know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. It's so clear. So here we have John clearly refuting that kind of thinking. Paul, in uh, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, also teaches Christ's full divinity. This is a beautiful passage in Colossians 1. It says, He, Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What a beautiful passage just echoing this teaching that we see in the Gospel of John. It's interesting also to notice that Mark's gospel opens with the word, using the word beginning. The be- Mark's gospel opens with the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. And, and some, again, some Bible scholars have kind of uh, speculated. They don't, we don't know this, certainly. But they speculated that John may have, in a sense, made a little bit of a reference to the gospel of Mark, much, written much earlier almost as if to say, Mark wrote about the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Now, I want to show you that the starting point of the gospel can be traced back to the beginning of the entire universe. Jesus was already with God when time began. So that's kind of an interesting thought. Well, the second little phrase there in verse 1, we're still on the first point. This is the Second sub-point. Second phrase in verse 1 is, and the word was with God. And what this teaches us is that Jesus has always communed with God. You could say he's always been in communion with God. He's always communed with God. And the word was with God. The word translated with was, it's interesting, when you study the Greek there, it wasn't necessarily, well, it wasn't one of the most common Greek words John could have used to say with. It actually was a very specific word that, that has a more intimate meaning. It's the word pros, pros, which means toward or being face-to-face with someone. And there are other possible uh, ways to translate this phrase would be, and the word was in God's presence, or and the word was very close to God, or and the word was in close fellowship with God. This is the concept that Jesus is in close fellowship when it says, and the word was with God. It just it doesn't mean, for example, he was in the same room as God or in the vicinity of God. No, it's this intimate word of being, being very close to someone in close commu- communication, close fellowship, even face-to-face. In nearly all cases, this word pros means Means, has this meaning of, of close fellowship only when one person is relating to another person as well. 
This simple phrase just establishes that although Jesus and the Father are one, and we know that is true, John 10.30 says, is where Jesus himself says, I and the Father are one. Jesus, whom John calls the Word, is also a person distinguishable from God. This is part of the mystery of the Trinity. And Jesus enjoys a personal relationship with God. This phrase gives us such a beautiful picture, actually, of two persons of the Trinity. It doesn't speak of the Holy Spirit, but it gives a beautiful picture of this relationship that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have in the Trinity. So in stating, and the Word was with God, John declares the eternal existence of the Word with the Father, his relationship of nearness to Him, his equality with Him, and also the distinction of the Word from the Father. He was always with Him, is now with Him, and always will be with Him. From all eternity, there was an intimate and inexpressible unity union between the first and second persons of the Trinity, between Christ the Word and God the Father. Well, I'm just now going to look at the, the third sub-point for this, just for verse 1. The third phrase is, and the Word, and this, I'm going to call this kind of a truth bomb. This is kind of a truth bomb, right? John drops on us in verse 1, and the Word was God clearly meaning that Jesus is God in the flesh. And the Word was God. And honestly, this is really the sticking point for many people when it comes to embracing Christianity. Jehovah's Witnesses, already mentioned, Mormons, Christian scientists, Scientologists, members of the Unification Church, and many other I guess I could say in a nice way, fringe denominations, but really it would be a cult if, if one doesn't believe what the Bible teaches about Jesus. So we'll just say cults. Um, many others don't believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and a member of the Trinity. So I'm not going to go into great detail explaining how the specific words and the grammatical construction of of this phrase chosen by John clearly declare Jesus' full divinity, but they, they do. And any attempt to downplay the plain meaning of this inspired phrase really twists the apostles' intended meaning. I'll just give you one little explanation by the theologian F.F. F. Bruce. I thought this was a great explanation of why this little phrase and the word was God means what it appears to mean. F.F. Bruce says, those people who emphasize that the true rendering of the last clause of John 1.1 is the word was a God, which is what Jehovah's Witnesses and some others say that it means, the word is a God. Those who emphasize this prove nothing except their ignorance of Greek grammar. Those who know even some basic grammar, Greek, Greek grammar, will understand that the verb to be here takes a predicate nominative so that the article with word establishes the subject of the sentence. Thus, John wants to declare that the word was God and not that God was the word. So I had to brush up on this. In my marriage, in my family, my wife is the grammar person. She remembers, you know, 
these things like predicate nominative, predicate noun. I do not. So I had to brush up on this. So a predicate nominative or predicate noun, it's a noun that completes a linking verb and renames the subject. So in the case of the phrase, and the word was God, the subject is Jesus, the word. <clears throat> the linking verb is was. And the predicate nominative, which renames the word, gives it a different name, is God. So in this short phrase, it's, it's this very simple construction. John is unmistakably stating that Jesus Christ is and always has been God. And the Word was God. There's no getting around it if you're going to take John's meaning as he intended it. So John intends for his entire gospel, really, to be read in light of this essential verse. One pastor stated that this verse means that the deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. The implications of believing this truth that Jesus is truly, fully God are vital and they're eternal. The, here are just real quickly four implications of understanding and believing this truth that Jesus Christ is God. One, because Jesus is God, we can have true knowledge of God. Jesus said in John 14, 9, that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Prophets brought God's message to his people, but Jesus is Emmanuel, God dwelling with his people. In him we can know the love, the holiness, and the power of God. The second implication, because Jesus is God, redemption is available. The death of Christ is sufficient to atone for sinners because the infinite holy God who knew no sin gave his perfect life in our place on the cross. That's, we see that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Um, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Third implication, because Jesus is God, believers are reconciled to God in Him because God Himself came. Not an angel, not a messenger. God Himself came and crossed the chasm that was created by our sin. And then the fourth implication is because Jesus is God, we worship him. We worship Jesus. He is not just the highest created creature. He is God in the same sense and to the same degree as God the Father. He is as deserving of our praise, our adoration, and our obedience as is God the Father. So these are just four implications of this beautiful, profound truth that Jesus Christ is God. Now that John has established that Jesus is fully God, now we'll move to the second, second verse and second point that God tells us that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of life. God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, um, John has restated for impact, I should mention, he restated in verse 2 for impact that though Jesus was fully human, he has always been with the Father and therefore is deity. He doesn't want us to miss the point that there was never a time when Jesus Christ did not exist with the Father. So now we see, starting with verse 3, verse 2 is a restatement. Verse 3, Jesus is the creator and sustainer of life. Verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I think I read past that verse quickly again when I was younger, 
and didn't really think much about it. Just kind of went over my head, maybe, or in one ear and out the other. And I thought, oh, that's, that's, that sounds wonderful, but I didn't really think, think much about it. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. This is John's emphatic statement. And it's interesting because it's very emphatic. He states it positively and he states it negatively in the same sentence. That Jesus himself, the word of God, is the author of all creation. So this is kind of a silly example. But an, another example of a statement like this could be found in, in uh, a situation where kids are playing a game and, and they wait for their turn to play the game, okay? So when it's one boy's turn, he might say, it's my turn to play the game now. No one else gets to play while it's my turn. So, you know, it's a strong statement. It's my turn and you don't get to play right now. Well, that's a very different situation, but just to show that this is emphatic, this is an emphatic statement. All things were made through him, and without him, without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. The word that's translated all things refers to every individual element of something, of whatever it's speaking of. Every single detail, in this case creation, every single detail of God's creation, both micro and macro, tiny and huge, this would include gigantic galaxies at the farthest reaches of the universe or atoms which are less than 150 millionth of an inch in diameter. The Greek text could be translated, not even one thing was made without Christ. Not even one thing. A commentator uh, summarized this verse beautifully saying this, the unifying explanation of the universe is a person the Word, the Son of God, who became man and walked the earth as Jesus Christ. This is the one who created the universe, who sustains the universe, and for whom the universe exists. Wow. It's just so profound. Verse 4 of the passage says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. So, we're still looking at point two. Jesus is the creator and sustainer of life. This life that John refers to, he could be referring at least in part to physical life since he just explained that Jesus is the creator of, of everything, including our lives. But the word used there, the word that, Paul, uh, that John chose there, zoe, often refers to spiritual life. It's often used to mean spiritual life. And considering how often Jesus is said to impart spiritual life, like, for example, in John 5, 21, says the Son gives life to whom he will. And so this is talking about he gives spiritual awakening or spiritual life to those he chooses. It's likely that John means more than physical existence and just that our physical lives come from Jesus. According to Scripture, physical life does come from God. Um, Acts 17, 28 is where Paul's at the Areopagus, and he says, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. So physically, our lives come from God. Spiritual life comes from God. We just looked at a minute ago. Resurrection life comes from Jesus. Uh, in, in John eleven twenty five. that's where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And eternal life comes from God. 
We know that from the Gospel of John as well. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. All of these aspects of life are found in Jesus Christ, all of them. So many commentators believe John really is referring to more than the physical life. Probably he's referring to the new spiritual life that God grants to those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ for salvation. Spiritual life that transforms our inner being, and as a result, it transforms our behavior. John 6, 40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. This is Jesus speaking. This is the will of my Father, He says, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus, our Creator, made us, and He supplies our every breath physically. And Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and the Creator of all things, gives us eternal life, saying that His sheep, this is John 10, 28, His sheep will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of His hand. Well, finally, we look at the last part of the short passage. This is point three. John says, Christ's life is the light of men. And the, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the final point we're looking at real briefly is, Jesus is the light who overcomes darkness. Jesus is the light who overcomes darkness. In this verse, John is probably alluding just very generally to the incarnation, which enabled us to see the light of God's glory and His truth shining in our dark world. He's probably alluding to Christ's crucifixion at the hands of those who loved their wicked deeds, therefore hated Christ's sin-exposing light, and he's probably also has in view the resurrection, where Jesus triumphed and overcame the darkness of sin and death for all eternity. In Ephesians 4.18, Paul tells us that unbelievers are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So this is that darkness John is probably referring to. Unbelievers are darkened in their understanding, alienated from God. This is likely, uh, again, the type of darkness John spoke of which cannot and will not overcome the light of Christ, the light of the gospel. Calvin said, <clears throat> The blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clarity of the gospel. The sun is no less bright because blind men do not perceive its light. That's a great statement. And A.W. Tozer noted that the human intellect, even in its fallen state, is an awesome work of God, but it lies in darkness until it has been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. It's also, as we think about this concept of Christ being the light who overcomes the darkness, it's interesting to note that in, in Matthew 5, 14, Jesus calls us the light of the world. That's, that's astounding. But he calls us that because we represent him in the world. Believers represent him in the world. And we are to let his pure, holy light of truth shine through our lives. This is so others will see His light and give glory to God. We're just reflectors of His light. 
so that many will put their trust in Christ and be saved. Well, the, the strong present tense verb that John uses for overcomes, just one last little look at that verse. He uses a strong present tense verb for overcomes in verse 5, and it communicates to readers of his day, to us, to any future people who read this gospel, that although God is allowing darkness to exist in the world for a time, nothing will ever quench the light of the world. Jesus will always overcome. Jesus has overcome. Nothing will quench the light of the world. Jesus Christ, who said in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, just to summarize, it's a brief passage and it teaches that Jesus Christ, who was born in Bethlehem, who died on a cross, who rose from the grave after three days, and we, we know these things, this same Jesus has eternally existed in fellowship with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit. He's the second person of the Trinity, yet is himself fully God in all respects. All things were created through and for Jesus, tells us again in Colossians 1:16. Both physical and spiritual life come from Jesus, and he is the only true light of the world, the light of life that brings forgiveness and reconciliation with God and eternal life to all who believe in him. So, so even if this is true, why is it important to believe this? Why is it so important to believe that Jesus Christ is truly God? Because John has revealed that Jesus Christ, who was born so humbly in Bethlehem, was Almighty God himself, condescending, it says in, in Philippians 2, or emptying himself, stooping down, condescending to live and walk among his creatures, the same God-man, Jesus, who gave his perfect holy life to pay for our sins, this same Jesus now sympathizes with our weaknesses and strengthens us when we struggle with sin. And we know that the same Jesus who died for our sins and rose in victory, this Jesus, who is God, is the head of all rule and authority. It says this in Colossians 2.10. Verse before, Colossians 2.9 says that we are complete in Christ. I'm sorry, the verse before says that all the fullness of God's deity dwells in Christ, verse 9. Verse 10 says, Jesus is the head of all rule and all authority. He is fully God. And this same Jesus will reign over all creation forever and ever. So hopefully this Christmas, as we study this little passage, as well as read the other accounts of Christ's coming, we will praise God for sending his son, Jesus Christ, who is truly and literally, God with us. God with us, Emmanuel. And just, this is super brief, two little thoughts of application. This truth, I believe, can do many things for us. It's so critical for us to understand it and believe it. But two things it can do for us. First, it can bring great comfort. All the blessings that Jesus offers, eternal life, God's forgiveness, his comfort, his healing, actually come from God himself. These are gifts from God himself. 
In Christ, who is fully God, we are redeemed and we're accepted by our loving Creator, whom we had rebelled against, leading to our condemnation, our death sentence. John 10, 24 says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the second thing, so there's such comfort in knowing that God himself, through Jesus Christ, his Son, has brought us this salvation and eternal life. And the second thing is this should give us great confidence in sharing the gospel, in sharing who Christ is with others should give us so confidence. We can be confident when we share the gospel message, we are sharing the very words of God. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, the way, the truth, and the life had all authority to lay down his perfect life to redeem sinners. And just one final brief passage from Titus 2, and I know um, Spencer is teaching on this, and I believe taught this passage recently. But Titus 2, starting with verse 11, says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Wow. The appearing, we look for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we were just singing this morning, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I don't know if you noticed kind of how profound those words that go by so quickly are, but the second verse is, Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? Praise God. Jesus is Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that it is so clear, that it is powerful, that it is profound, that it is so critical that we understand it. And when we do, Lord, we worship and praise you. Even as we sang in that carol, hail the incarnate deity. We, we hail, we praise, we worship Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you and praise you, Father and Lord Jesus. You are the word who was in the beginning with God, who was with 
God and is always with God and who is God. This is so amazing. This is so fantastic. This is so wonderful. Lord, would you comfort us with these words and this truth that the Lord Jesus is God, is Emmanuel, God with us. And would you give us great confidence in sharing the gospel story with others, knowing that they too can have a relationship with their creator in Jesus Christ, God's son, who came to earth to reveal the glory of God to us and to redeem us. And we thank you that your sacrifice on the cross was absolutely sufficient to pay for our sins. For you are perfect and holy, you are fully God. Lord, we continue to praise you today and ask you to to guide the rest of this day. And may we honor you and guide the rest of this season. May we continue to worship and praise you and honor you with what we believe and the way that we live in response to that belief lives that belong to you, purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. All right, would you stand? Just give a short benediction. Based on 1 John 5, 20, may you know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Amen.